Sekou Cook is an architect, researcher, educator, curator, and the author of Hip Hop Architecture. He is assistant professor at Syracuse University's School of Architecture, where he teaches exploratory design studios and seminars. Working against the racist legacy of architecture, Seku hopes to leave an equally lasting impact on undeserved communities through his research, practice, and other academic endeavors. In part one of this episode, Seku and I discuss hip-hop architecture, the relationship between these two seemingly disparate concepts, its use of space as performance, current architects influenced by hip-hop, and how the ideas underpinning this cultural mode play out in our lived environments. Take a listen. Welcome to the Bloomsbury Academic Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Morofsky, and today I'm speaking to Seku Cook, the author of Hip Hop Architecture. Thank you for being on the show, because in another life, I think I was an urban planner and I'm really fascinated by this idea of how space can sort of reinforce or liberate us from current power structures. So I'm very excited about this. Thanks. Thanks, Rebecca. That's a really heavy topic to start with, but yeah, sure. (laughs) Yeah, we definitely have a lot of work to do to realize how powerful space is in our daily lives and how much control and agency we have in creating and shaping that. I'm sure that we're going to get into it. But just to get started, I wanted to know, how did your own experiences as an architect, an academic, an educator end up leading you to study and write about hip hop architecture? Yeah, I think it all started when I was at Cornell. I was at Cornell in a really quite amazing time. So I think many people know, if listeners don't know at all, architecture isn't a place where you find a whole lot of Black people not in the profession, definitely not in schools. So most people who are black in America and did architecture are used to going to school with like being the only black person in their class or maybe one other or in the whole like four or five years, maybe having three or four people in their classes. So there's not a whole lot of camaraderie, not a whole lot of connection. It's usually a bunch of us working as individuals. At Cornell in the mid-90s, we had this amazing time where there were like three or four some years, five, six, even eight. So in my class, there were seven Black people in a class of 70. So we were creeping up closer to the national demographics, which is like 13 or 14 percent African-Americans. So that was a time when we could actually like have real conversations about things that had to do with Blackness, things that had to do with our identities and culture, and most importantly, things that had to do with hip-hop. So we had this really amazing colleague, Nate Williams. He had just finished his fifth year of architecture school when I started, but he was still around Cornell, still doing stuff. But his thesis in 1993 was about hip-hop architecture, and it was legendary. Everyone who was there or anyone who heard about it was talking about it for years later. So I didn't start till 94 and I was still hearing about this hip hop architecture thing. So it was something that we discussed quite a lot in architecture school for the first four or five years that I was there. 
Right. And that fusion to many people who hear it, I think, is a very intriguing and yet unlikely juxtaposition, this idea between hip hop and architecture. For you, what is hip hop architecture and how do these two apparently completely disparate fields relate to one another? Yeah, the funny thing is that when we think that they're disconnected, that there's a juxtaposition, that only comes from us thinking that are not understanding what hip-hop is or not understanding what architecture is. Most of the time when people think about hip-hop, they're thinking about a genre of music. And most of the time when people think about architecture, they're thinking about big classical buildings that are imposing or they're thinking about HGTV, right? So we're not really understanding exactly what hip-hop is, which is really a cultural phenomenon. And I argue quite boldly that hip-hop is the dominant cultural phenomenon of our time and that as a primary cultural phenomenon, it, it affects all aspects of our daily lives. And architecture really is a tool for shaping and understanding the cultural identities of people. It's an expression of our values, expression of our beliefs. It is essentially about people, not about objects. So if you think about it that way, then if you have to express cultural phenomena and cultural identity through architecture, then hip-hop architecture isn't just a weird juxtaposition. It's actually an essential overlap, an essential part of how we should be thinking about how we shape spaces. Right. And you even go as far as to suggest that architecture is the sort of hidden fifth pillar of hip-hop, which Correct. I agree is a leading cultural phenomenon in American culture. But for listeners who maybe aren't architects, uh-huh. can you sort of explain what's sort of underpinning that architectural history and theory? Yeah, yeah. I think it's people who are able to stretch in their understanding of hip-hop beyond just the music. They understand that, yeah, there's like DJing, there's MCing, there's producers, there's also hip-hop dance, b-boying, breakdancing, pop and locking. They know about graffiti as a part of hip-hop culture. And I think they can recognize that there's fashion and even literature that is about hip-hop culture, right? So if we think about other major cultural movements in history, you can think about modernism, or you can think about the Baroque or the Renaissance, right? Those are things that maybe people can think about, you know, Baroque classical music, but the Baroque classical era also had theater and it also had dance and it also had fine art. And as architects, we study Baroque architecture all the time, right? So it was just a part of the zeitgeist, a part of the day in a certain part of the world. And so the extension that I'm making is that hip hop is this force, this cultural identity, this cultural phenomenon that produced all these other things, but didn't seem to produce an architecture because architecture was something that became so inaccessible to people who use hip hop as their primary identifier. Right. That's really clarifying, actually. I think that was the connection that I initially made was that it was kind of like postmodernism or something where it's a, yeah, it's a cultural movement that sort of informs multiple mediums at once, but that with hip-hop specifically, as you just said, it was architecture, which is such a sort of elitist (laughs) field, I think was barred from the people that were producing hip-hop for a long time. The irony there for me is that the way we think about architecture now is just how it's been defined for us by who is teaching us. 
And we've been taught by academics, we've been taught by primarily white men who have come up in a tradition that's very Western and very elitist and doesn't leave a whole lot of space for incorporating other people's identities. Actually, there have been movements that have been trying to strip identity away from architecture and just look at it as this pure, simple form or think about it as neutral, think about it as apolitical. And of course, today we know that architecture is anything but apolitical or but neutral. And any other cultures that they were thinking about is something to study and adapt and basically replicate in the same way that they've been replicating all these other cultural forms. Instead of acknowledging that people of all cultures create their own architecture and they're capable of creating their own identities of architecture. No, absolutely. I think about this all the time about how, yeah, architecture does feel so top down to me. Like we're so expected to passively accept the spaces that are created for us. But as you said, it's like not apolitical. I was walking around the city the other day and trying to sit down on this bench, but I realized it had like these ridges that like made it impossible for a homeless person to sleep there at night. And I just like think about like the hostility of certain spaces, which is like obviously such a conscious decision of the people that are creating those spaces. So how oh can it not God. be political? <laughs> yeah, oh my God. Spend some time in Port Authority bus terminal. It is the most aggressively exclusive space that I've ever been in. It just, there's no space, no surface, no area in that place that is for people to sit and to communicate and relax. It's all about you being uncomfortable to not sit, to be there for a very short period of time so that you can grab your bus and leave. It's an incredibly hostile environment. Right. And it's like a dungeon in there. I mean, there's no like fresh air. There's no like real windows into the outside world. Exactly. I feel like a lot of New York City spaces are like that when I really think about it. But, you know, on this topic of accessibility, thinking about how you were trying to convey these somewhat radical ideas in your book, you have the balance between rigorous architectural theory and more of like a accessible tone because your book adopts this unconventional remix style, this which is interspersed with like excerpts and samples of text, chapters presented as tracks and B-sides and interludes like a hip hop album. And I think that you've already touched upon this with like the sort of elitism of architecture, but I think you're eager to break down the conventions of an uh-huh. academic book. Can you explain to me what motivated that? So, yeah. So if you look at the first two chapters, the first two tracks of volume two, I start with legitimacy and then authenticity. So that's the kind of tightrope that I'm walking. It's a balancing act between having or finding legitimacy within the academic circles, that this is real architectural theory, that what I'm talking about isn't just a fad. It's not just something that is a passing flavor of the day. It's something that's deeply grounded in real architectural theory and creating its own architectural theory. And it also needs to find legitimacy within the hip hop world, which also has its own body of academic and street knowledge. And then the authenticity part is about me being authentic to myself, me being authentic to hip hop as a culture, and really reflecting a mindset that's not just about fitting into a formula or this typical way of creating academic books, 
but really making this accessible and pushing the edges of what is acceptable within the space of academic writing. And so you want to make these ideas accessible, but I'm also curious what pushing the sort of confines of conventional architecture would look like, right? So Uh you talk a lot about what hip hop architecture is and what it can do. How does that actually manifest in a building or an idea or an urban environment? Like how do we sort of translate those accessible ideas into our living environment from page to our living environment? Yeah, yeah. Great question. That is really the central question of the book itself. It is really this search for like what that exactly is, how it manifests itself in the real world, how it manifests itself into ideas. And instead of starting with my own ideas of what that is, I look at as many examples as I can of other people who have been looking for the answers to this question and looking for it in their work. So I have work from students who did their own thesis projects and were testing out these ideas, you know, usually in a space where their professors didn't really understand what they were trying to do, but they knew that there's something about their cultural identity that needed to be expressed within their architecture to practitioners who have looked at hip hop in different ways and looked for either in a process way or in a way that's about their own identity that really reflects all of the things that they've been interested in, in making this a real thing in the real world, right? So how do they reflect the image of hip hop? How do they reflect the process of hip hop? And how do they distill down the identity of hip hop into the architectural form? And then also reflecting on people who are academics who've been writing about this in theory and have also been teaching studios themselves now and teaching with a series of students and having them explore these ideas. And in the end, I come to some conclusions, but I leave enough space for interpretation that there's a resistance to putting this into a singular, really clean nutshell. That's something that you can identify and say, okay, if you have these types of lines and these shape windows and this shape roof line, then this is now hip hop architecture, right? And then it really gets down to the process and the intention and how the work is actually reflecting the identity of the people who are creating it and the identity of the people who are using it. Right. I think having rigid standards for what would constitute hip hop architecture seems a little counterintuitive considering it feels like hip hop is always transforming or renegotiating itself and sort of contrary to what the spirit of the music feels like to me. It's in a constant state of definition and redefinition. It's constantly changing itself. And it's had to because it's resisting appropriation. As soon as hip hop stands still, then somebody can own it and claim it and make money off of it. And the people who are making money off of it are not usually the people who are identifying with that culture, right? Right. Um, So it's had to move forward. One of the areas that it, it moves forward the quickest is in language. When you think about the language that's used in hip hop culture and how quickly it transforms and how quickly it gets assumed and assimilated within everyday culture, everyday parlance is really quite fascinating, right? Like how many of us use things like this and lit and all of these different slang terms that come from hip hop culture, but are now just like part of our everyday 
conversations. Right. So much of the language gets adopted as part of the common vernacular. Yeah, it's really interesting when you outline the lineage like that, but it's so true. I'm wondering if there are any architects or buildings currently that exemplify these ideas best to you. Yeah, again, a number of them I identify in the book. There's some really great work being done by Stéphane Malka in France, where he has done some really beautiful installations and projections on architecture that are really quite amazing. There's this other artist, graffiti artist turned um, installation artist, and who's worked with architects called Delta, who's doing some really amazing things in Europe. And there are other projects and other people like Theaster Gates. He really has done work. Again, he's not an architect, but some of the work that he's done is really irreverent and really moving around or moving against the edges of what is supposed to be allowed by people who are not practicing architects but creating these really fantastic spaces. Ola Lekan Jafis, he is a visual artist, but his work is always about architecture and reflecting architectural understanding and knowledge because he's trained as an architect. And he's now doing a lot more installations and surfaces for major institutions across the country. So his work is coming off the page and starting to affect environments and spaces. And it's really quite wonderful to see the depth of adaptation and mixing and really cultural expression and beauty in all the work that he's doing right now. It's so interesting that you mentioned Theaster Gates because that's who I was talking about before this conversation started. I was saying that I just went to see this incredible exhibit at the New Museum, Grief and Grievance. It was curated by the late Akwi and Weiser. I highly recommend it for anybody who's based in the New York City area. They had a piece by Theaster Gates who was trained as an urban planner and he did this performance piece about this now demolished church on the West Side of Chicago. And yeah, so basically what happened in it is that he had people walk around the church banging these unhinged doors and sort of banging them against the floor. And it sounded like a metronome. And it was like, basically, he was using music to maintain the beating heart of the church. And it's really touching upon, it really reminded me of your book because it was all preoccupied with the idea of racial imagination and spatial terms and how it can be created or produced through economic dispossession in a way, but then reimagined completely through the creativity of the people that are trying to resist those power structures. And I found it so, I don't know, mesmerizing to watch. <laughs> yeah, it was like the beat of a hip hop track. It was really yeah. Fun. Well, I haven't seen the show as yet myself, but as you've described it and what I know of Theaster's work, it's also part of what you're talking about before, that it's not a top-down process, right? It's a bottom-up process where people are getting involved and they are participating in the creation of this thing and that the space itself is constantly transforming and changing, not just tonally or orally, but physically, right? So your sensation of being in that space once the doors are opening and closing is changing. The fact that you're using elements of the building to create that sound is also quite fantastic. But that it's an adaptive improvisational process that creates the performance and also creates the space. 
So space as performance is definitely another big theme within the book itself. I should mention here, though, and she doesn't like me mentioning her name beside Tiaster, but she shows up right beside Tiaster in the book, Amanda Williams, and the work that she does. She's also a visual artist trained as an architect, and she's gotten a lot of really beautiful recognition for her work on colored theory, where she would take these buildings that were slated for demolition on the south side of Chicago and just paint them a color, like one really bold color that covers all of the surfaces. And there's this cultural identity for the color, like aqua sheen or red hot chilies or pink hair moisturizer, pink oil moisturizer, right? These are colors that people in the community understand and know and identify with. And now a building that used to be like an eyesore in the neighborhood that's about to get torn down temporarily becomes this piece of light. And again, it talks about how the community is activated to create something that is using architecture as a tool to understand our own identity. And she has a new performance piece that's going to open at MoMA later this month that I can't wait to see that has to do with bodies in space and how our bodies are changed and affected by rules and orders in space. 